Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm a little self-conscious that I don't have a beautiful English accent after those two scripture readers, but you'll have to make do. During the pandemic, uh, my son and one of his friends spent the summer doing a spoof of Dude Perfect, the YouTube phenomenon of a group of five friends who are grown men who make trick shots like swishing a basketball from the top of a skyscraper onto the park parking lot below. And, and I, I do mean a phenomenon. They have over 56 million subscribers to their YouTube channel, and uh, they do this now as a full-time job. Uh, it is actually good, clean fun, what they do as well. Instead of dude perfect, Jameson and his friend called themselves little boys imperfect. And they would go to a football field or a baseball field and set up a camera and then try to make a trick shot that was captured on film. And on the rare but spectacular occasion on which they would make one of those shots, in particular a blitz ball, which is a little plastic yellow ball that doesn't really fly straight, being thrown across the width of the football field into a trash can, uh, you can hear them on the recording screaming, let's go, let's go, let's go, after the shot is made. It's kind of an exuberant cry of celebration. We did it. Let's do it again. Let's keep on going. There's excitement and joy in that moment of saying, let's go. Well, in the psalmist, and in Psalm 122, we get that expression, let's go. But here it's not because there was just a trick shot that was made or a great play in a sports game but rather because they are nearing the house of the Lord. Let's go to the house of the Lord, the psalmist says, or the companions of the psalmist, I should say. Let us go to the house of the Lord there in verse 1. They're excited about it. They're on the way to the temple, and this is the purpose of their pilgrimage. Remember, uh, a few weeks ago, we started a series in the Psalms of Ascent, in Psalms 120 to 134, and in the first psalm, it was about setting out from a place of foreign land, those who hate peace, I've, I've had my dwelling for too long. And then Psalm 121 is really about God's provision. The Lord keeps watch on the journey. Well, Psalm 122, it seems as if they've arrived. Our feet are standing within your, your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, maybe they're saying the psalm as they're on the way and just anticipating that moment, but it certainly seems to indicate that they're here. And then the companions say, let's go. There's excitement and joy. Let's go to worship. Now, I wonder for you, when is, and this is serious, when is the last time that your family was getting in the car to come to church and you were like, let's go? <laughs> Guessing that doesn't happen. Maybe it happens some with the pandemic coming off and we can come back for the first time. But the reality is, I think, you know, maybe for a lot of us, that journey of getting, especially if you've got kids at home, into the car and getting to church can sometimes be like the, the, the most opposite thing from what you think of when you think of something that's exciting and joyful. In this situation for these pilgrims, it wasn't just 20 minutes in the car. It was days, maybe weeks, of hiking and camping and rationing food to get to this point where they've now arrived at Jerusalem and are standing within the gates and the temple is up ahead. Let's go. That's why the Psalm begins with the words, I was glad, I was glad. There is real joy and real, real spiritual gladness in these pilgrims as they come to approach the temple. As we look at the psalm this morning, we're gonna do it in two sections. One is to consider first the source of their gladness, and then secondly, to think about what flows out from their gladness or joy. So first, what's behind this spiritual gladness? You see, if you've got the psalm in front of you, I was glad 
when they said to me. The house of the Lord is mentioned in the first verse of this psalm and in the last verse of this psalm, bookending the psalm, as if to say this is really what the psalm is all about. They've come to the dwelling place of God and to the presence of God. And this is where the Lord dwells upon the earth. And so they are glad as they've arrived here and are drawing near to their maker and redeemer. It's actually their approach to God and his nearness, his growing nearness that fuels their gladness. And I think most of us know what this is like in one sense. We know the gladness of drawing near to the presence of someone that we love. I remember one of the longest stints that I had of being apart from my wife Mandy. We were living in England and she had to go back to the U.S. with Chloe. I think she made about six or seven transatlantic flights without me with Chloe in her first, the first year of Chloe's life, our oldest. And we had to spend 19 days apart. Now, if you're a missionary here or if you've served in the military, you're kind of thinking 19 days, Mark, really? That's all? So I acknowledge that maybe, you know, I'm, I, that's, that's, it was a lot for me. So if you'll just grant me that. Um, and I remember palpably the sense of getting out of, as the return date approached, just the growing anticipation. And then on the day, spring day in March of 2004, heading out from our house on Marlboro Road, south of the city center of Oxford and heading to the bus, bus station at the center. And the immense feeling of gladness and anticipation at the opportunity to see again these two people that I deeply loved. I think that's the kind of sense that we should have as these pilgrims arrive into Jerusalem. There's a joy about drawing near to the one who loves them and who loves us as they come to his dwelling place. Let's think for a minute about the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, God's dwelling place is in numerous places. He dwelt in Eden, remember? He dwelt in the burning bush as he appeared to Moses. He dwelt at Sinai when he spoke to Moses again. And climactically, and, he, and of course he dwelt in the tabernacle as they traveled through the wilderness in that tent. And then of course he dwelt climactically in the temple as well. But now, as Jesus has come upon the earth, Jesus is the very presence of God dwelling among us. Paul says in Colossians 2, in him the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, God's dwelling place is now among and in the people who believe in his son Jesus, who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, who are claiming his promises, and who are being made holy as the temple was holy and as Jesus himself was holy. In other words, the amazing reality is that what we call the church, the called out, gathered people of God, is the now new dwelling place of God. It is the temple of the living God. This is a renewed Jew plus Gentile people that are centered around the Messiah Jesus. What Paul now calls the Israel of God in Galatians 6 verse 16. This people, and we should be clear, is no longer ethnically defined nor are they geographically centered in Palestine or Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That was a massive statement. I think it slides over us most of the time when we read it. That suddenly what had been the central place of worship in the temple was now going to be not geographically centered anymore. Because we all know why. It was going to be centered around Jesus and his people. And that would, been, that would then expand out to extend to all nations and to the ends of the earth. Geographically and ethnically. 
expanding as far as possible. So Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's important to note as well, the New Testament never speaks about an architecturally renewed temple. It's absent. And that's important as a detail because it's communicating to us again that we are the renewed temple of the living God. We are As we look at the terms of Psalm 122, the house of the Lord, we are Jerusalem. The church is the dwelling place of God, not the bricks and mortar of the building in which we sit right now, but the gathered assembly of God's people wherever it takes place is the dwelling place of God on earth. What happens when we gather? Sometimes I know it seems fairly unremarkable, but what does Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 18? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is present now as we gather together. Paul, when he writes about the worship of the church, and it was a bit chaotic in Corinth. Corinth had divisions and difficulties and strife in their midst. But he writes about their worship in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And he says, An unbeliever will come in and hear a word of prophecy and is convicted of his sin and then, quote, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God dwells among his gathered people. That's a radical statement. And yes, we might say, well, isn't God everywhere? And of course he is. We think about Psalm 139, that great psalm that basically communicates to us that we cannot escape God's presence wherever we go, that even the darkness is as light to you. God is with you in your home and in your workplace and in your neighborhood. God is with you when you are downtrodden and despairing and frustrated, and he's with you when you're joyful and elated. God is always with you, and we want to affirm that clearly as a biblical truth. We say that God is omnipresent, and we mean that. But there is a sense in which, biblically speaking, we need to affirm The unique and special sense of God's presence when his people gather together. That we are the temple of the living God and God is present when we gather. So the psalmist and his companions say, let's go to church, really. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go be in the presence of God together. And I'm guessing that for many of you, that is not what you said when you set out to come to Park Street Church today. I'll explore maybe a few reasons why that's the case. One is the frequency. You know, for them, this was a three times a year mandated journey to come and be at the festivals in Jerusalem. And so for us, I'm hoping that we come more than three times a year to church, hopefully more than three times a month even. And so there is something about the extended, the, the, the much higher frequency that maybe makes it a little bit more normal and not so exuberant. But I wonder, too, if there's the reality of the complications of the church. Frustrations with leaders or other members. Differences of opinion. Difficult transitions. The fatigue over a particular way in which we've been serving the church. Perhaps feeling like nobody's noticing or caring. All of these things are real. And they're nothing new, actually. For those of us who know a bit of church history, this isn't surprising at all. It's not as if Park Street Church, which has our own issues, and by the way, I would say every church in the world has its own issues. 
That's just part of what it means to be the church, but it's not new or unique for the day to day. It's something that has existed throughout all of history. Robert Louis Wilkins' book, The First Thousand Years, is an excellent account of the first thousand years of the history of the church. And he tells wonderful stories in that book that are compelling and inspiring of many who have lived a life of love, like Cyprian or Augustine or Patrick or Benedict. But there are far more, it seems, in his account of the first thousand years that are saucy and steamy accounts that would be very well suited for the pages of the tabloids today of power, politics, greed, and sheer stubbornness. And we don't just have to read church history. We need to pick up our Bible and read the New Testament as well. When we look at the pages of Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians or even the book of Acts, we see plenty of internal strife and struggle and turmoil in the church. And I say all of this to say that as we say truthfully, this is the dwelling place of God, I wonder sometimes if we have a hard time seeing it because it's also a very human place too, where we do hurt one another, where we are sinful and where we do have challenges together. But I want to encourage us by saying it's never not been that way in the history of the church. The question is, well, why would we keep going? Why would we want to press further into what we sometimes see as a flawed institution that feels difficult? And it's, the answer is simple, and, but it's, it's, it, and it's what the psalm teaches us. It's the fact that God is here, that God is present as we gather together. God is working in us. And we hold fiercely to that biblical truth that God is present among his people as we gather And so we want to say with the psalmist's companions, let's go to the house of the Lord with gladness, with expectation, and with hope. We just sang, marching to Zion. And I do want to say that our gatherings here week after week and other churches in our city and our nation and around the world that are gathering in Jesus' name, which are the dwelling places of God upon this earth, these are merely approximations to which I think we would all say amen. These are merely approximations of that future day of consummation when Jesus will return. And we read in Revelation 21 that this city will come down out of the heavens and he calls it a new Jerusalem. And you remember what is said about that city, the new Jerusalem, that the dwelling place of God will be with man. So that now we know in part, but then will we be fully known. Now we see dimly as though through a mirror, then we shall see face to face. So what we grasp and glimpse, even in this moment, which is glorious and good, but jaded at times and muted, is one day going to be fully displayed in resplendent glory as we gather, not only with those who are part of Park Street Church, but, or all the churches in the city, but all the churches around the world, gathering from every tribe and tongue and nation before the King of Kings and the great throne in that heavenly city that we are, in fact, marching toward, that we call Zion. That's what we're moving toward. So the source of their joy is the presence of God. I want to say to you that that's what the Bible promises us. That's what it's all about. Our lives. We so often want to put our joy into many, many different things, even in the church. But that which is the great promise of the biblical texts of the gospel is that we get to be with God and you sitting here right now whether you feel like it or not are in the presence of the living God 
Let's go to the house of the Lord. The presence of God is the source of the joy. But let's look at verses 3 through 5 and see a little bit more of the source of the joy. Some of the shades or dimensions that are given here as the psalmist begins to describe Jerusalem. The first is in verse 3. And it's as we come into the presence of the Lord, we come into a place of refuge. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. That is, as the pilgrims would walk into Jerusalem, they would see the mighty walls and then the architecture of the city where every stone is in its proper place and there's no gaps. It's a beautiful city. It implies order and security and protection that the pilgrims did not enjoy on the open road. And in that sense, this architectural outlay of the city itself presents a physical picture of a spiritual truth and reality, which is as you come into the presence of God, you come to a place of tremendous refuge. And don't we need refuge? I was climbing a, a 14er in Colorado many, many years ago called Long's Peak and climbed it with a buddy of mine and we came off the peak about midday when you're supposed to get off the peak and the clouds didn't look so good and a storm as often will do in Colorado in the summertime just rolled in and it was thundering and lightning and we were above tree line. It's a pretty scary place to be. Well, in the middle of this talus field of these big boulders, there was a tarp. We had no idea whose tarp it was, and we beelined to the tarp. And there were some other climbers hidden underneath, or under the tarp. It was theirs that they had been able to set up in a hurry, and we climbed under it and took shelter and rode out the storm. That's what the presence of God is to be for us. Through the variations of this transitory life, whatever it is that we might be feeling this morning, we are to come into the presence of the Lord and find him to be our refuge in times of trouble. So we see that in verse 3. Then in verse 4, we see that coming into the presence of the Lord fuels our joy because it brings unity to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. These tribes coming from different places, gathering together in Jerusalem. Imagine the scene with the city beginning to overflow with these pilgrims as they come to the festival, as they come to share in the worship of the living God together. And they're drawn together again from their disparate places, from their differences and distinctives. They're drawn together as they begin to look at the presence of God and worship him in his presence. That is a picture of what happens to us as we come into the presence of the Lord as well. I'm sure many of you have been to concerts or big sporting events, you know, a football game with the Patriots or at the TD Garden. And think of that picture of these thousands of people coming into a parking lot and then flooding into a stadium from all different walks of life. And then, you know, what happens? It used to be Tom Brady, it's not anymore. But what happens when he, you know, uh, something happens good. Everybody's just cheering. There's a sense of unity and, and purpose in that moment. That all those differences are kind of faded away as the, as the focus and attention is on this one thing on which they are agreed. And that's the idea here in the beginning of verse 4. To which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord. They're not tribes belonging to themselves. They belong to the Lord. And as they gather in his presence, they're unified again in their common worship of the living God. As we gather, worship is unitive. As we gather in the dwelling place of God, which is this gathering, we are unified even amidst our differences. Then as verse 4 continues, it says, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So there's refuge, there's unity. These are just additional dimensions of why the presence of the Lord brings great joy. But this one is, it brings us into thanksgiving. How does the Lord decree that we worship? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. What were we made to do? As image bearers of God. 
we were made to give him thanks. There's a sense of peace and rest and reassurance that comes in our lives when we begin to do the very thing that we were created to do. And it says there was a decree here. This was a command to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Do you always feel like giving thanks to God? I know I don't. We don't. But we're commanded to do so. And it's a command, a a generous and loving command from our maker who says, this is what you were made to do. As long as you resist this, as long as you resist this in false worship or refusing to give thanks, you will be frustrated like a tool that was made to do something but it's being used for something else. But when you come into this decree, O Israel, when you come into the presence of the Lord and you give thanks to to the name of the Lord, you are brought into that for which you were made to fulfill the purpose that was put in you at creation. So there's giving thanks. And then fourthly, there is verse 5. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. That is, as we come into the presence of God, we come into a kingly presence. And we understand and acknowledge his governance and authority over our lives as a truly benevolent and generous king. It's interesting here, actually. This says the house of David, if you see in verse 5. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the house of the Lord is mentioned in verse 1 and verse 9. And then you get the house of David mentioned in verse 5. And so there's a sense in which this piece of poetry is reinforcing a theological truth through its literary structure. That is that the house of David is surrounded by and built upon and takes its direction from the house of the Lord. And the house of David is marked, as we read, by thrones for judgment. This is the longing for justice. The Psalms say that the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. These pilgrims perhaps weren't getting justice maybe in their own lands. And so they might even bring unresolved issues and cases with them to Jerusalem to to come before the thrones of David to receive justice. And as we come into the presence of the Lord, we are reminded again that we have a benevolent king who cares for us deeply, who loves us sincerely, who has given himself for us and who wants us to flourish under his rule and reign. And that is a cause for joy, a deep cause for joy. Refuge, unity, thanksgiving, and justice. I know that none of us experience this perfectly when we come to church. And there is a sense in which I'm sure even back then in ancient Israel, they didn't as well when they came to the festivals in Jerusalem. And I can say that with confidence because they were human beings who wrestled with sin just like we do. But even as we fall short of these things that are part of the source of joy in the presence of God, we must remember that we deal with these shortcomings through repentance and confession and forgiveness. That this is the way that God intends for us to deal with all of the ways in which we fall short of what the joy is of coming into his presence. This is what we're called to. I want to say one one final thing and uh, just just to say that they were gathering together in person. This was a a gathering where they were coming together physically, and that matters deeply. And if you're listening online right now, I don't in any way want to say anything other than what we've been saying, which is genuine and true, that for those of you who have higher risks, that we are encouraging you to worship virtually now. But I do want to say to all of us that the worship of God's people was always meant to be gathering together in person, that it's here that we encounter the presence of the Lord. And so I look forward to that day when we can almost entirely be joined again together in this place as God's people. 
So this is what grounds their joy. I was glad, remember the psalm begins, well, glad over the presence of the Lord that brings unity and refuge and thanksgiving and justice. But where does it go? Verses six through nine. And we'll be more brief on these last points. What flows out of this spiritual gladness? Well, it's really a concern. A concern, in this case, for Jerusalem, which I would say in our case is a concern for the church, for the people of God. And it's a concern that gets expressed in two primary ways. One is through prayer, and the other is through doing good. Through prayer. Pray, verse 6, for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. It's a prayer for God to bring his shalom. The Hebrew words that are repeated in, the, in these verses of the text, shalom and shavah, which means the, the word translated in the ESV secure, or sometimes it's trans, translated prosperity. These are playing on the sounds in the Hebrew word for Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. And so there's this kind of sense in which this is all resonating with one another here. Peace and prosperity or security. The concern for the church, and I just want to ask, do you pray for the church? Do you pray for its peace? Peace means a kind of blessing in all relationships that leads to the flourishing of all. It means living in accordance with the standards of God's righteousness and justice that brings blessing as we walk in right relationship one in, with one another. These pilgrims pray. Their joy is overflowing into action of prayer. Don't ever forget that prayer is the first and greatest action of the church. And so they pray for Jerusalem. The word for security or prosperity actually at its root means to be at ease or to leisure. And so the prayer here is that the church will remember what was said in Psalm 121, that the Lord keeps watch, that he doesn't sleep, that they can then have rest underneath his presence. That's what we're praying for, for that kind of flourishing. We're praying for peace to be preserved from internal strife and conflict, but also from external, the external evil forces of the world that can come in both frontal assaults and sneak attacks as well. How does Jesus teach us to pray every day? And we've already prayed it today. Deliver us from the evil one or from evil. And that's the kind of prayer that is flowing out of the joy of the psalmist coming into the Lord's presence. And then lastly, verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The joy of coming into the presence of the Lord is flowing out into both a concern expressed in prayer, but also into actions of doing good. Caring for the church, of giving our serving, our time, our, our loving, and our listening to the people of God as the place of God's dwelling. This is what we are called to do as an expression of our joy. I want to close by looking at Jesus for a moment. Jesus, who was himself the very joyful presence of God here on the earth, embodies these concerns for the church, doesn't he? You might remember on the night before he was crucified in John 17 that he prayed, not just for the ones who were there with him in the room, but he said, I pray also for all who will believe in me through their message. And after his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand, we read in Hebrews 7, 25, that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is right now 
praying for you and for me, praying for Park Street Church and the churches around the city that walk with him and around the world. This is his ongoing high priestly ministry is to be in prayer for us. And Jesus does good for the church as well. He, of course, gave himself fully in what might have been the greatest trick shot of all of history as he surrendered himself to the powers of darkness to go to the cross and at the cross defeat the powers of evil. And what happened in the temple that day? Do you remember? The curtain that separated the presence of God from the people of God was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus, by his doing good, opens up a way for us to have the kind of joy that the psalmist expresses here in Psalm 122. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go to church. Let's be the people of God and with God. But I want to say this as I close, that we all know that we fall short of praying for the church. We fall short of doing good for the church. Our hope is not in our own efforts, even though I do want to encourage us to make efforts for the peace and the security of the church, of the people of God, and to encourage us to do good and to give of ourselves to the blessing of the people of God. But we know that we'll fall short. Our hope is genuinely not in ourselves or in our spirit-empowered actions, but our hope rests in Jesus himself, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has done everything to enable us to be the dwelling place of God to enable us to know the genuine joy of coming into the presence of God, even in our brokenness and our sin, even in our need and our desperation, really only in those things. He has made a way. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go to the dwelling place of God. And let's be a people who are marked by that joy in this world. Amen.